You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi. And alongside me, as always, is Paul Gilieri. Paul, we've both got fresh beers in our hand. Mm. You've got, uh, what do you got there? Uh, it is in, uh, what are we, like a ballast point, Aloha Hazy India Pale Ale. Ballast point, uh, that being the brewery from. Classy San Diego. <laughs> and, uh, Paul, Paul is the, the big news. I get to drop this live on the pod. Do it. So uh, as of today, I am officially in the eyes of Wells Fargo, <laughs> a homeowner in uh, the great, wonderful uh, area of North County, San Diego. So Paul, 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 yes, exactly. We, we, the deal has been closed. Wow. ABC, always be closing. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee's for I'm closing. I'm not going to hold up a set of brass balls here for. <laughs> oh boy. Well, uh, yeah. You know, celebrations are in order, and uh, for for those wondering about how the podcast will work, well, we've always done it over Zoom, anyways. Um, so no difference to you at home. Um, oh. We uh, obviously there'll be a little a slight transition of of ordering Wi-Fi and getting a getting a recording station set up yes. in a new location. But we'll, we'll, it'll be made work. We've got some contingency plans in place to make sure that's seamless to y'all at home uh, or wherever you listen in the car. I don't know. Our good listeners deserve content, and they should not be subjected to, uh, you know, unnecessary delays on yeah. my account. So we, we are prepared for yes, any and all possible obstacles that may may lay in the way but for now yeah in honor of my my new home in north county san diego in, in mm-hmm. the beautiful beautiful wonderful locale known as san marcos or san parcos as the locals call it for all of its lush greenery uh i'm gonna enjoy this this beautiful san diego san diegan i guess uh brew here so here we go on oh. on to the next chapter yes sir and um you know, to I'm there with you in 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 well in spirit, but also drinking. If that wise, is another winter solstice. It is not. Although <laughs> I still have some winter solstice. I'm not gonna Good lie. God. Uh no, this is also from Anderson Valley. It's um it's a a passion fruit and guava um hazy IPA. Fascinating. It's it's a sour. Oh yeah, Topical sours are sour something. Or, those I don't know. Acquired tastes, my friend. I love a good sour. That 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 right there. That is like the all those yesterdays of beers. <laughs> sours, right there. <laughs> you know, I was at the um at the market today, getting uh procuring some uh groceries for dinner, and I saw a uh, three different Anderson Valley um varietals <laughs> options, and so I picked a, a six pack of each up. One of them being this lovely. Uh, this is solar powered brewery. Oh yeah, Anderson Valley. Look at that. Uh, I also well, got one the of these days. We're, we're going to have a campaign launched on behalf of our listeners. Yes. I should say uh, on our behalf. Thanks to them, yeah. where they will somehow, through the, the the great magnitude that is their voting power, convince Anderson Valley to be the the proud sponsor of this podcast. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Amy from uh, up there in NorCal, 
was actually, I think maybe is going to try and work some of her magic. But um, in the meantime, I've got this, I've got the uh, cherry ghost, which I had earlier. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the coastal ale, which is, I guess a, uh, I guess portions of that go to surf rider. So I know I feel good too. Oh, so there's yeah. like a, a noble cause there. Yeah. Nice. So there's very, that. Very cool. You know, well, well, here's what I'll tell you. There yeah. are 150 local breweries in uh, San Diego County. So Anderson Valley, if uh, you will not be the bell of this ball, trust oh, me, man. we will find another. Stone Brewery, <clears throat> Ballast Point. Mm-hmm. Oh, many more, my friend. Lagunitas. It's, it, it's, oh, it's open. We're open. Anyways, you guys didn't come on here and listen to five minutes of beer bands. Or maybe you did. I don't know. I don't know how you roll. Um, before we get into it, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for reviewing and, and subscribing and rating and all that you do and, and just listening and telling your friends about it. And um, anybody who's a patron, we really appreciate you. And um, t-shirt buyers, you know, you guys are great as well. So everyone's yeah. great. You, you 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 should tell all your friends about us. In honor of Michael Keaton's return to the role of Batman, we are the State I, of Love and Trust <laughs> podcast. Tell all your friends about us. Do it. <laughs> My suit doesn't have nipples on it. <laughs> all right. Speaking of nipples, Paul. Um, no, I have no clue where I'm going with that. <laughs> Easy there, kid. There was, you know, what's funny is last week, right as we dropped um, our episode. There was uh, an interview with Stone Gossard from, uh, or by, I guess you say, not from, but by, maybe from too, Kyle Meredith out in Louisville. And um, he did an interview with Stone. He's done one before. And a lot of topics in this 39 minute video that were, I found it very engaging. And we're going to kind of talk about a little bit of it. We are. And we've split we it up. Talking points. Talking points. I split it up into into Brad stuff, loose groove record stuff, and of course Pearl Jam stuff. Yeah. And then there's a little addendum from our friend Jeff Ament that I'll I'll mention. We'll kind of we'll just discuss. So this is a more of a free flowing kind of topical conversation. So if you're listening to this in the year 2025, it's not going to make a whole bunch of sense. Or you're going to be like, ah, I wonder what they're going to say about stuff that I already know happened. Cool. <laughs> you know, back in time. All right, and then we'll get to our usual lyric and live cut, Biz Nass. So, like I said, Stone spoke to Kyle. And, um, you know, when it comes to the Brad stuff, um, we'll start there. Uh, As many of us know, um, Sean Smith, who sang and played guitar in Brad, he passed away a couple years back um, in the middle of putting together a new record. And, you know, after the guys... um, stone and and regan um you know they they kind of processed that and they said you know what we got to put this stuff out um and they're going to at the end of july and they're also going to reissue uh their first record shame yeah um and the name of the new record is escaping me because i'm a bad person let's see here some of you are yelling at me it's called in the moment you were born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed the lead single. So that's coming out. And uh, the reissue on vinyl of Shame is coming out. I forgot how much I like that record. Um, you know, one of the things that 
Stone told Kyle is that they went into or they, they were going to go into this final recording process a few years back with the same approach they did back in 92, which was to kind of just do it really quickly and not overthink it. And he mentioned something that I thought was interesting. And that was that at the time when you're a new band like that, and you've, you've got nothing to show for yourself, you know, that it's a blank canvas, you've got nothing to lose. And I find that very interesting. And we'll, we'll weave that through to the Pearl Jam stuff in a bit, but what do you think about bands that have quote unquote, nothing to lose? You know, what do you think about the kind of music that they might put together. Well, I think that one thing that really defines a lot of what Brad's sound could be characterized as stems from the origin of this band. And you really have to go a lot farther back than shame. I think you have mm-hmm. to go all the way back to 1980 when Andy Wood and his brother Kevin Wood formed Malfunction. Mm-hmm. Because Malfunction also featured uh, Regan as uh, as the drummer. And <clears throat> it was only after Andy Wood died that we saw Regan and we saw uh, eventually Kevin get together with Sean Smith. And this is 2006. So Kevin at this point, Regan, the only surviving members of, of Malfunction, got together with Sean Smith and uh, Corey Kane, and they started writing new music. Uh, the, and they used lyrics that were written by Andy Wood before his death. And the idea was to release a new album, and then they were going to plan, uh, they plan on going on tour. And they intended to use the name Malfunction, but they actually changed it to Subfunction or uh, the Subfunction Project, I think they were also known as. And then they finally settled on uh, From the North was the band. Um, <clears throat> so it's interesting to me to see these iterations because Pearl Jam essentially was the the uh, evolution of of Green River, of Mother Love Bone, of, of, of these bands that had, had suffered disappointment and tragedy. And I think in a lot of ways, Brad was the evolution of Malfunction. And Andy Wood is kind of at the center of it. And what I think is interesting with both Sean and Andy, it, we have untimely deaths to the um, the singers. You know what I mean? And I think that it's notable to consider when you you know the, to, to circle back to your question, which is you know what what impact does having nothing to lose have on a band? <clears throat> I think that that's a misconception. I think it's easy in retrospect to say, well, we had nothing, nothing to lose, but they, they so quickly found out how much there was to lose. Mm. When you lose a bandmate, when you lose a brother, when you lose somebody that was a, an important member of your creative uh, conglomerate. And it's hard to, for me to separate that idea. You know, I'm, I'm really struck by the, the disparity between Hey, we've got nothing to lose. So we're just making music and it's free and it's all organic and it comes out just raw and perfect. And then suddenly, you know, realizing that oh, like our band is completely dissolved at this point because of the loss of a member. So we had, you know, so much to gain, so much to lose at the same time. Um, so in essence, you know, the, the, this process means everything and nothing at the same time. Um, so I think that the, the, the very, it isn't so much that they had nothing to lose because they they were aimless and you know they were just guys hanging out playing music. 
I think it has everything to do with the personalities at the time, the desire to be something so much more and the freedom that comes with saying, you know what, let's accept the reality that we may not get where we want to go or, you know what, we may be relegated or this project may be relegated to, you know, similar to a temple of the dog was just, just, just this free form workshop, this, this exposition of, expression and um and just letting that carry the day you know what i mean there's a lot of pressure that comes from well we got signed to a label and we gotta we gotta put something out there and we have to deliver it's different i think when it's a passion project or it's an homage or it's it's almost like a um a thematic eulogy of sorts in 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 many ways which is what i think temple of the dog could be could be characterized as that was for sure. I mean, shame, yeah. <laughs> shame was the, the reason why I asked that question is because when you think about shame, it's like at least for Stone, he's playing with house money. He was his tent is blown up. It has, yeah. It's a it's a it's a massive thing when he when he you know forms this band with these other guys. So when you say nothing nothing to lose, well, you know he's in a position where what he produces with these guys doesn't have to be a hit. So for him, I think the pressure is off to make something uh, commercially amazing or commercially successful to whatever degree you want to call success. Um, I, I honestly, I don't know what the other guys were thinking at the time, as far as what they wanted out of it. Um, obviously it had been a while since malfunction stopped. It had been, But I, I think a lot of what brought the guys back together to to experiment and play with with subfunction was mm. the same kind of spirit that Shame was produced in, which was basically just in studio jam sessions, right? You know, and so I think that's where that raw sound comes in. I mean, you make a, a salient point that that he was Stone playing with House Money. There was no pressure for for Brad uh, to be anything at all, um, which is probably helpful though from his point of view, from a songwriting point of view. Like, if the other guys are there to you know, like they said, like Stone said, to kind of get in a room and then they just jam something out and there's a trust factor that's being built. Like, if the other guys are comfortable not having their own 10, then the pressure is off. There's nothing, there's, there is nothing to lose because the idea of what you be losing is the commercial success if you had produced some different kind of music. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe that's what they mean by that. For sure, but I also don't think they were trying to make the kind of music that would necessarily resonate the way that Ten did. And, and I think it's interesting. We'll talk about this shortly. Well, That's an interesting point that you bring <clears> up <throat> because of how Stone views Ten, which we'll get to. Correct, which is I was going to go there. Yeah. Um, uh, and he does bring that up in the interview. And so I, I think that there was a conscious effort to to move in a different direction and explore other influences and sounds. And And I think that... <clears throat> It, so it wasn't so much like, hey, we got nothing to lose as much as it was, this is a creative outlet that I have to feed. Right. And, and each of them felt uh, that because of the success of 10, they had the the freedom and the platform to be able to do that. That I think absent that, you know, this kind of a band, I don't know necessarily if if this kind of music really ever takes off anywhere. I mean, you could argue that's, that Stone that's a great Gosser point. wasn't yeah. even in this band. Like, what the, the, does this... Like uh, how does anybody how much ever hear an, this? Yeah, yeah, I mean, how does anybody ever hear this? <clears throat> Even so, with yeah. Stone, it was like moderate sales. I mean, I think one track was I mean, a hit in another country. I but, didn't, I didn't know about Brad until probably college. Like neither did know, I. Ten years later, 
um, and only very in a very tertiary sense. But um, yeah, so I think when you say when he says, because that's his phrase, nothing to lose, and you think about trying to capture that energy, you know, 27 or 26 years later, whatever it was, they were putting together this this new and, and final record. Um, I don't know how you capture that energy. Sure, Stone's in a um, probably more comfortable, more stable position. So again, for him, there's nothing to lose, really. This is just a passion thing. Um, and I have to imagine the other guys are in similar situations where they don't need this record to do much of anything to get something out of it on a personal level. So I'm curious, like, and the thing is, is that what Stone was saying is that they were talking about how excited they were with all these ideas and they were going to get in the studio and try and try and make the record in the similar way they did. And I have to imagine that has to do with like the whole jamming together kind of thing and finding how the puzzle pieces fit together through that communal process, as opposed to many ways that Pearl Jam has done it, where it's like, okay, you've got a song, let's work it out. You've got a song, let's work it out. Uh, and we, we never got that, which is unfortunate, but at right. least we'll hear what they were attempting to do or what, what was mostly baked. And you know what? Sometimes when you make brownies and you underbake it, they're, they're a fucking amazing. So <laughs> maybe... And if the lead single is any is any indication, which I really enjoyed, um, we're gonna have a really cool record from them uh, in about five six weeks. Um, one other little note that I think was interesting is that uh, Stone said that at the time he was trying to channel uh, NWA and Ice Cube on his riffs because of yeah. like the the bouncy groovy <laughs> repetitive pattern. Kind of, that's cool. Didn't know he yeah. was listening to that kind of stuff. Um, one other thing that I thought was interesting besides the Pearl Jam stuff, um, was Stone's very obvious passion and excitement about loose groove records and mm -hmm. all the artists that are putting on stuff. He mentioned, um, Tiger Cub's new record just came out. Brittany Davis's, uh, debut LP is coming. She had an EP last year, Brittany, um, obviously in, in Painted Shield, uh, James and the Cold Gun has their uh, debut record coming out soon. I listened to one of those tracks today. It's really pretty cool. Painted Shield 3 is coming in the fall. Yeah. Like, what? <clears throat> and then, of course, like I said, the 30th anniversary of Shame and the Final Bride record, amongst other stuff. When when Kyle pivoted to Loose Groove, what did, did you notice how he light up? Uh, he was excited. Yeah. I, I think that there's a... Um there's an affinity for these, for any really, you know, small label. I mean, obviously when you have a name like stone behind it, but people forget that this, this was started by uh, stone and Regan back in 94. I mean, this yeah. idea, it was initially a, a subsidiary of Sony and it didn't be, go independent until 1996, but they have a, a nice track record of um, kind of shining a spotlight on a lot of, uh, underrated artists. I mean, obviously, Queens of the Stone Age was the the signature signing, right, in, mm -hmm. in the history of, of the label to this point. Um, but <clears throat> there are some really, really interesting, diverse soundscapes when you start exploring what uh, what has been signed. Uh, they released the, the the Seattle hip hop compilation in 1997. So you mentioned uh, the, that uh, connection Stone had to to hip hop, and you start to see some of that when you when you start diving in. 
to what the label has actually released, uh, which I thought was was pretty cool. Also, the Chicago Cab soundtrack, which featured oh, yeah. uh, what I think is the, the signature uh, uh, studio cut of Hard to Imagine. And, um, you know, there's just, it's a fascinating catalog. It really, really is. Um, I believe that there's an opportunity for, for some voices to be, to be heard and for this to continue to expand because I'm, I'm starting to find that Stone's musical tastes are continuing to expand. And, and he's talking about, you know, he had never heard of, uh, what is it? Uh, Inhaler? Is that Bono's yeah. band? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he hadn't, like, they're touring, you know what I mean? And, and he wasn't really that familiar. Like, he knew Bono's son was in the band, but, like, he hadn't really listened to the sound, which I thought was fascinating to me. So he was like, oh, as soon as the podcast is over, I'm going to go listen. You know, I'm, I'm going to go check him out because, uh, you know, you speak so highly of him. And that openness, you know, that willingness to just kind of check stuff out and explore, I think means that there's there's going to be uh, a giving back of sorts to to other sounds that may not otherwise get the kind of push that they would, if that makes sense. I mean, obviously we want to talk to everybody in the band at some point. That would be, I mean, the amount of questions we have for everybody is tremendous. If I was guaranteed like multiple interviews with Stone, I would do one that really focused on this kind of thing because I find it fascinating how he has, he has found I want to say, I don't want to say new life per se, but like, it felt like he has, especially with the, now the, the dissolution of, of Brad, um, although he has painted shield, I feel like there's, this is like his new passion project that, that runs alongside Pearl Jam at almost at the same weight. He spoke so highly of it and he sounded so excited about what's to come. And I think that, you know, the record labels, we're in a state of real flux. We had we had no idea what was going to happen with record labels um, when Napster and Kazaa and LimeWire and all that crap was happening, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and record labels were thrown for, were thrown for a loop. Now I feel like with streaming and we've kind of settled into what the new dynamic is. I feel like record labels who have either gotten through the mire because they're big enough and could absorb it or have come about and been born now have a new way of doing things. And it's almost like if you can maximize your social media might and the people that are behind you and you know, the right people, you can, you can find these bands from anywhere. You don't have to send a and R guys. You can kind of be like, Oh, check out this SoundCloud link. Oh man, check out this TikTok I saw. And like, it's just a new exciting way to get those people to get even to a bigger audience faster. And then he seems very, very excited by that. And he mentioned all these other bands. He mentioned some some punk band out of the UK called Bad Nerves. Um, I think he mentioned someone who uh, Brittany Davis had produced recently called Kozier, who has a couple of albums out, singer songwriting type stuff, has a bit of a country twang to it. Really, really cool. Like I was listening to this this interview, and I pit pause and went into Apple Music, and I started like searching all those people, and I'm like, add to library add to library. Like it was really cool, all different kinds of things. And when you think about stones writing over the last 32 years, you see how it's evolved. And now you, when you, when you, when I, at least for me, when I see the kinds of bands that he's excited about putting on the label and getting them exposure, it kind of helps to reinforce where the rest of his influences lie. 
if you work your if you work your way backwards. You, you know what I mean? Right. Well, listen. Uh, one thing that hasn't changed from 1992 to 2000 and or 1993 even to 2023, uh, record labels remain the best way to get an artist's music heard. Yeah. By a larger by a larger audience, uh, they specialize in the field of marketing. They specialize in promoting an artist and an artist's sound. Uh, they they've been doing it for decades. It's just it it is a, a staple of the industry. Uh, it comes with connections. It comes with contacts. It comes with access to studios and producers and publicists yeah. and booking agents yeah. and so on and so on and so on. But most importantly, and Pearl Jam learned this in their battle with Ticketmaster. Record labels also they offer you financial and legal support. And and I think that's really important in an industry where when talent gets signed, they're especially in this like this uh, you know attention starved society in which we live these days. Um, you know, yeah, you can just get your own little digital suite and record a record at home in a way that has, I think, really impacted studios. But more than anything else, in an era where online, you know, you have consumers and you have um, you have people who are creating content in this this unmatched at an unmatched level. We have never had more choice. It's mm-hmm. an overwhelming, like suffocating. How do you get spotlight? Exactly right. So yeah. you, you, people can just literally buy what they want. They can stream it at, at, with the flick of a finger, man. Like we used to have to go to Tower Records or or Amoeba or you know or even worse, we used to have Sam Goodies. Sam Goody or Sam Goody or we you know we participate in that little. I forget what the program was where you Columbia like, check House. off this Columbia House exactly. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, like back back in the day. Um, and, you know, artists now they're using social social media. You know, I mean, record labels, I don't think record labels are dying. I think what they're doing is they're, they're starting evolving. to, they're, they're evolving. Thank you. That's the word. They're evolving. They're adapting. They are helping artists see how they can use social mil, uh, social media, pardon me, to build up their fan base, to to share their sound without needing the help of of a label the way that they used to. So it's interesting that record labels have have, have figured out how they are needed and how they're not. And, mm. and they've, they have evolved in a way that, that they're still necessary. And I think that speaks volumes to, to the, not only the industry, but to how, how labels are, um, are finding a way to survive, how they're redefining their purpose and they're adapting. They're adapting very, very quickly. And I, I say all this, Jason, because Stone talked about mortality in this interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. And I think that a lot of this attraction to these new bands and these new sounds and this openness and and there, there's an element of legacy to me there, mm. where where Stone is thinking, you know, there's only so many more performances, so many more records that I have in me at my age. I mean, these guys are you know late fifties, early sixties. You know, I think only uh, what is it? Matt Jeff and, is sixty and, and, and Jeff is Matt, sixty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the other guys are late fifties, but they're at an age where. You know, uh, we're not going to see albums coming out every every two or three years the way we might see from much younger bands. Um, but in 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 a way, like Stone can stay connected to music. Stone can stay connected to his legacy and and what drives him and what he's passionate about as a conduit to to other musicians' music as a as as someone who can promote and someone who can and serve as a. Um, a platform for this new generation of sound 
to to kind of catapult itself forward. And so I, but but I, while at the same time, you know, maintaining a fidelity to to what he likes, to what drives him, to what speaks to him, you know. And that's the beauty of of being a small label like that uh, exactly. is that they can do whatever the hell they want to do. And he mentioned um, one of the, uh, I think you said the co-owner. I think there's three guys that kind of are at the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, Stone being one of them, but right. one of the guys being really um, the the lead when it comes to navigating the record label industry and and how he's able to really like work that angle. And Stone's yes. kind of Stone's almost like the A and R guy, where it's like. I like these sounds and I've been in the industry long enough to know, you know, what's going to work and how we can make it work. And the, the three guys together kind of pool their individual talents right. and they're, and they're, they're slowly amassing this catalog of artists that it's like the next thing. And I think, it like is. I said, you said legacy. I said, you know, it's his, it's his new passion that rivals Pearl Jam. Cause uh, yeah, like, like you said with mortality, it's, it's eventually that's going to run out. And I don't think you or I are going to stop liking hard rock and music when we're in no. our seventies, but we can't play it anymore. So, but we can still be like, Hey, that new band is great. And and I think that's really cool that he's jacked up like that. Another thing that he's really jacked up on is Andrew Watt. Yeah. <laughs> and Kyle eventually was like, Hey, you know, let's talk about the next record. And he said, well, Andrew Watt is just chock full of energy. Um, let me pull up the little, the little notes I have here. He says that um, he's a hardcore fan. He stressed this like Jewish East Coastness. And when he stresses that, it's because I think what he means, and I'm from the East Coast, I'm from the New York tri state area, if you will. Um, there is a certain level of uh, passion about the band that I don't know, it's not better than or worse than anybody else. It's just a different kind of level of psychotic psychosis <laughs> um, about being into this band and diving and being really nerdy about it, which is maybe, maybe why it, it works that I'm on this show because there's just a, a certain thing. Um, and I, he stresses that um, and it was all complimentary in the way he was doing it. And he said that, Andrew was energizing them. He said there's a couple of different recording periods that they did together over the last year. So I guess they were doing this even uh, in the off times, uh, off weeks of their tour about a year ago. Um, and I don't know how, what you think, but when he says energizes them, that doesn't necessarily mean like 10 2.0, but it means that they're fucking stoked on it. And that's all I can ask for. Right. I think that's important is that with a lot of the new music, Pearl Jam, it's very clear they're not phoning it in. They're not just going through the motions. We're not just getting a regurgitation and recycling of old sounds and 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 hits, uh, just kind of reinvented. Um, you know, there, there. I, I, I don't mean this in a, a derogatory way, but you know, there are a couple of Nickelback songs where if you layer them over the top of each other, you, you. Oh, I've heard that. It's right. hilarious. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the same formula. You know what I mean? Um, and it's look, I, bands are going to make the choices that bands are going to make, but Pearl Jam's made a conscious one of their own to not be afraid to redefine and reinvent themselves in uh, new and unique ways. And I think songs like um, Dance of the Clairvoyance and, uh, you know, Eddie expanding his bandwidth 
to play instruments that you, you wouldn't that haven't been relevant for 150 years <laughs> and it speaks volumes and um i do think that we we need to i think there's a tendency to overestimate and overplay uh andrew watts fandom i mean josh evans co-produced gigaton and he's you know, a self Very much a fan. Big, big time Pearl Jam fan. So I, I feel like that, you know, this idea that, oh, they're working with a, a super fan. So like, what's that going to lead to? We, we've been down this road before. So I, I think if anything, um, you know, there's going to be a, what, what I like about uh, what Andrew's doing is he's, he's trying to push the envelope and, uh, and, and just have them working at this frenetic pace where it's just, it's full of energy. And, and I think it's going to allow something that's very, um, how do I say this? Very inventive. There's going to be an ingenuity there. Whereas I think with Josh, and it's not that Josh was like, I'm just going to get out of the way because these guys are like, I'm a fan. Because he wasn't that way. I mean, he, what, I, what I thought Josh excelled at was kind of reading the band and helping to channel where it was that they were trying to go. He, he did an, a nice job shepherding that sound. That's a great word. Um. But I think with Andrew, I I don't know if it's so much that as much as it is because he's he's a very avid musician himself, mm-hmm. and so I I and the way that he is Stone characterized Andrew as somebody who's who's this, you know, he's a smashing success as a pop producer. But you know, as Stone said, he was probably a bigger fan of pop music than Andrew Watt was, which I thought was interesting. So I, I wonder if 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 Andrew's kind of coming at it more from like a um, you know out of body experience of like I am part of the band and I'm making a record with Pearl Jam kind of a thing, you know what I mean? I mean, the way that he co-wrote most of the Earthling songs mm-hmm. makes me assume that he feels very comfortable offering up ideas. Yeah. Um, I also think you're. I think again, we're gonna find out when the, when the record comes out. But what it feels like from everything that I'm reading or listening to is you've got um, this, you know, mega fan thing and you've got this working quickly, taking the moment by the, by the balls kind of thing. What does that sound like? That sounds like Josh the next, plus Brendan O'Brien. I was going to say, it could be an evolution <laughs> of what we saw with Brendan, you know, yeah. where, where Brendan contributed musically to... Um, but he was quick too. He's like, he was quick. Don't, don't exactly. overthink it. This is great. Let's yeah. keep moving. You yeah. know. So, so I, I, I see. I see. When we said it to Josh when he was on the show, like you, whatever, whatever seeds you've planted, those trees are going to grow with the fertilizer it, 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 of Andrew. Yes. So, you know, I, I think the combination of these. You know, when I first heard Andrew's stuff, um, his production of the of the Ozzy records, and even it's big. Um, it's it's a big it's a wall big of sound. sound yeah it's um it's it's in your face and I was like what is this going to sound like with with Pearl Jam but the more I learn about him and the more I hear Stone talking about him and the background that Josh gave us about where the band was at for Gigaton sessions it feels like you're gonna get the best of the Pearl Jam producing worlds yeah kind of funneled and bottlenecked into this I'm, I'm excited man i mean it's like whether we're you know andrew's 32 years old yeah. he is he is basically almost half the age of matt cameron and 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 jeff you know what i mean and and he is a super fan but more importantly than that um 
he is a very successful 32 years. <laughs> incredibly, yes, incredibly successful at, at what he does. And he's very good at it. And he would not be uh, working with the artists that he has worked with because um, because they are a big deal. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's, that's important to consider, you know, yeah. um, you, 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 you don't get to work with Justin Bieber and, uh, you know, uh, Camila Cabello and, and Elton John and, and, you know, Cardi B and Post Malone. Iggy I mean, these, Iggy, I mean, these are, you know, these are, these are signature names in yeah. today's music world. And he's working with them because he's good at what he does. And so I'm excited to see, you know, what happens when you get to work with a band like Pearl Jam that you are like head over heels in love with from a fan perspective. And you couple that with your, your ability to work with artists in today's age. Um, so in a lot of ways, and I, th I thought that was a wonderful comparison that you drew up, which was, you know, what would, if you took some of the sensibilities and the contributions that we've seen within context of uh, Brendan O'Brien working with Pearl Jam and Josh Evans working with Pearl Jam, and you kind of combine those things, you know, do we get something akin to what Andrew Watt might be able to achieve? And uh, I, I don't know what to expect, and that's what I love about that, this. That this, is that this is a record. great that is a great thing. Is we, we don't we think we might know based on those past experiences, but we don't know. I have another, no idea. <laughs> the other the other variable too is is he going to be um, so in it that he won't see the forest for the trees? I'm thinking oh, he, I'm, let us hope he will, not, but. but you would think, you know, cause we have, we have the earthling record to say, okay, he can, he can live in that world and step back and serve the song and serve the record. I would think that he'd have no problem doing the same thing with, with the full band. Um, now I, I do want to talk about some stuff with, with 10 that some mentioned, but before we get to that, um, we'll just finish this, this new record stuff. You know, he, he, he did say stone did that. Um, he feels that they're nearing the finish line. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, Jeff uh, countered that, but <laughs> he, he Jeff did. Jeff said that uh, he's glad that Stone is excited about this stuff, but he's not sure it's ready. Um, now you know that that might mean that they have fifteen songs and they're trying to figure out, you know, which of those are going to go on. It could mean that they have six or seven done, and they have to figure out which songs remain to fill out the record. I don't know what that means, but he said that six to seven months after it's completed that we'd get it, meaning to him summer or fall of next year. So basically about a year from now. Um, this is Jeff's speculation. This is Jeff's speculation. Yeah. That's a big range of time considering what stone said versus what jeff says yeah so like i wonder when when jeff says six to seven months after completion is that the completion of recording is that the completion of mixing uh, i mean I it, it, it honestly I mean, should not take a band a year to do all that but then again we got a seven-year gap between <laughs> Gigaton and lightning bolts, or who the hell yeah, knows? But the 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 thing is, is I think with Gigaton, you have to you, you can't underestimate the impact COVID had. That album was supposed to come out, and and we were supposed to have a tour for it. Well, and Chris much earlier, and then Chris, and you know, it's 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 haunting to think Chris, you know, uh, Sean, like it, all of this happening. And mm. I think again, this this ties in with what what Stone was talking about with mortality as well, you know. But uh, 
I don't know. I, 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 I would like to think that they're like, on one hand, you don't want to rush creative process. So if we get two more albums out of this band ever, because, you know, they take another, you know, 10 years to do each one, but <laughs> then, then it is what it is. But uh, it would be really interesting if, you know, they, they felt the sense of urgency to say, Hey, you know, how, how much more do we have? Like, how much more do we want to do? And uh, should we make a more concerted effort to do it? I don't know. You know, well, if they um, think if, if they're thinking about the mortality, wouldn't it, wouldn't that mean that you want to put stuff out? And if you have a producer who likes to work quickly and you trust this process, I mean, one plus one equals that record should be completed in the next handful of months and come out in the spring, if or, not earlier. Or you release what has already been created and we just haven't heard. And they, and they did talk about this. Yeah, they talked about a no code and uh, oh. yield re-release. They they talked about a lost dogs too. These things did come up. Yes. Um, now, admittedly, Stone was very non-committal to the point of of coming across as like completely out of touch and having no idea what's <laughs> even going on with that stuff. It's like really, <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah, that feels more like more like a Jeff and Ed thing going back in time. I don't think yeah. that Stone really does goes back it's, in time, but. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't poo poo either thing. He's he said that. Yeah, you know, I think he thought it's going to happen. Like he yeah. felt like we're going to get a no code and yield box set, which which would be amazing. Um, and when probed on whether or not there was enough out there, you know, like to 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 fill the coffer, so to speak, you know, B sides, you know, unreleased material, uh, you know, Stone again speculation on his part here because he he didn't commit to anything, but he led us to believe that there is a lot out there. That uh, you know, a Lost Dogs two type of release would would seem an appropriate way to to kind of make sure that all that gets yeah. heard one day. So who knows? Well, that will be exciting if that happens, and it would be nice if it came out sometime this year to keep us kind of uh, satiated until this new record. Oh comes. boy! Yeah, you know, Stone recalls coming off of the success of Ten and wanting to write and record um, the whole Brad album in like a week. Like he just he, they smoke some weed, they just bang out some tunes, and that was that. And then he talks about how it's easier to write music when there are no expectations. Yeah. Now, and I mean, we talked about this earlier. Do Pearl Jam fans, the casual ones at least, and maybe maybe some of the hardcore ones, and and definitely the overall music community in general, do they have expectations for this band anymore? We talked about what they're working on this record. The do and the timing and how and how critical they're being of themselves and self-analytical. Do they have anything to really prove? Are there expectations for them to meet, or is this just for them? And whatever comes out, comes out. I have lost expectations from Pearl Jam. There was a time in the catalog where I expected something. Um, I expected something out of the first song. I expected something out of the lead. When did that single. stop for you? Oh God. Um, I think it stopped completely for me sometime around backspacer. Yeah. I'm, I'm between there and lightning bolt. I can't remember which one I was like, this is, this is, yeah. That, that for me, that that's kind of where I just, I started to see that, uh, they were occupying, they were occupying a space that was, uh, that they had reached a level where they were now occupying a space where I was ready for anything and everything. And uh, 
okay, you know what? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to walk something back here. Okay. I'm going to walk something back. I do have it. I do have an expectation. It's, it's changed. Okay. I used to expect something out of, out of an album, out of uh, certain tracks, you know, the last track I had an expectation of the first track, you know, the lead single, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of a sound it might be. Now I have one expectation and only one expectation. Surprise me. Mm. I that's what I loved about dance of the clairvoyance. It's what I appreciate about buckle up. It's what I appreciated about, you know, Ed picking up an acoustic guitar and giving us just breathe. And, and the end, it's what I love about Matt Cameron's contributions. Yeah. It's, it's what I love about the evolution of, of what Mike and what uh, Jeff and um, what stone are all doing in terms of, of bringing something new in, into, into the fold. So I, I want to be surprised. It's what I liked about earthling, you know? So yeah. I just, uh, I'm well, not interested in, in a reincarnation of what we've already heard. I love, I am evolving. You and I are changing and you know, the sound should change with us as, as it always has. If you, if you think about it and you pull away 30,000 feet and you look at all the records lined up next to each other and you tell me that any of them sound the same, they don't, they all are different. Yeah. Both sonically production wise mm-hmm. arrangements, melodies, Lyrically, thematically, all of it. All very, very different. And I think a lot of people who grew up with the band, you know, got jazz on the first two, three, four records and then said, oh, they, things have changed. Look back. Those records yeah. were all fucking different. Yeah, they, they were changing you, you enjoyed from 10 them. to versus. <laughs> but like, like the, that sound, yes, it's different from Backspacer and Avocado and Lightning Bolt. Vastly different in some ways. But w- are you holding on to those first records because... They were the first that you heard mm-hmm. and there's a nostalgia attached that you can't get rid of because they're all very different. And, and musically speaking, someone who doesn't like um, super aggressive arena rock may have found lightning boltman like, wow, I love this. How many then, people do we talk to that love yield? Yeah. That, that that's their favorite record. You know, I mean, it's, that's nineteen or, or no code too, or no code. Yeah, and that's I mean, a, those are very different records from from ten, mm-hmm. which we you know we I, we we talk about ten as if it's like that is absolutely the pinnacle, and there's no argument. But like, no, not not necessarily. Um, and that that the success of ten confused Stone too. He says that he it didn't have pop elements or 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 the melody of Nevermind, for example. He was going on about how great Nevermind was, right. um, from from that perspective. He says that they were trying to make something artful with some punk while listening to a lot of heavy metal at the time. And it, it's hard for him to see why some people love it the way they do, but he admits he's probably being too analytical of his own work. And then he also said that he probably likes verses more than 10 because it's more visceral and less, I guess, overplayed or overly complex in its arrangements. And I find that fascinating that, that I find it fascinating that he, says that considering how I feel about 10 versus versus, but also when you think about it, that was versus was the first record that they really did together mm-hmm. where there was a, it felt very much more like a band as opposed to three or four guys plus Eddie from 10. What, what did you make of that? When he was talking about when, when he, when, by the way, when he says overplayed, it doesn't mean like too much playing. He means like, um, like they did too many takes 
And it was just, they're trying to make things too perfect. Like, what did I you think, make of him? Explaining I, I, like I that? think that's, that's why 10 is what it is. Yeah. I think, you know, this was, there is there, necessity and deadlines are the mothers of all invention. There was a deep seated desire to succeed with 10. They wanted to play. They wanted to play live. They had something special with Andy and they lost him. And they sensed that they had something special with Ed. And I don't think any of them knew where this was going to go, but they knew that there was something there. This is the chance. This was the chance. You don't get that close to tasting that and then have it ripped out from underneath you in the most heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, tragic of ways, and then just be okay with like doing, no, they, I'm sorry. I, I will never believe that there was not this innate desire to make it on a, a level that was so much bigger than any of them ever thought. And I, it, maybe not even that, maybe it was just make it on the level they thought they could with Andy. And um, that forced a certain degree of pressure. And I think Ed saw something special for himself. He saw this opportunity. Uh, he saw a sound that complemented his voice and provided him with a vehicle a sonic musical vehicle that that I know he he, he must have sensed uh, clearly elevated what he could do and 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 how he could speak to a listener um, with his voice and with his songwriting and it, everything just complemented each other so well and when you have these these powers at your disposal and you are willing to 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 paint. And overpaint and repaint and it, it just or or write and write and and scrap and rewrite to the point where you just can't let it go to where it has to be perfection. The, the, in a lot of ways, I feel like they 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 landed there. And sure, you know that doesn't mean that they didn't experience those moments on other records later. Uh, and Stone will be the first to tell you that he feels like later on that they they were more more successful at that. Um, that he goes back and he just hears you know. He he sees the layering and and it to him it just feels like overwriting I think in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, um, whereas for, for I think a lot of us and for for a lot of listeners at the time, it was the the aggregate of those powers and it was the culmination of that focus and that drive and that desire and the will to recapture a future that they thought had been stolen from them. Well, also there's by cruel there's, fate. There is. There are many ways to to become popular. Mm-hmm. So when he's talking about pop elements with Nevermind, for example, there's a way. There's many ways to write a hook, mm-hmm. and you can write a hook like Cyndi Lauper and Madonna and NWA and whatever Cinderella. <laughs> but you can also write a hook like Pearl Jam did with with a lot of the songs on Ten. It's just a different path to get to the same result of success. Right. And you're reaching different people. So if success is selling 5 million records in a couple of years, well, guess what? There, there were what? 6 billion people on the planet at the time. <laughs> that's not, that's not crazy to think that you can find a different subset of people that want to buy the record at that pace. Right. Because everyone's into something different. So when he looks back and he's, he listens to something that sounds, um, perfectionized, I guess, to make up a word or, or overly arranged. Or, and he, he looks back at verses and feels like, wow, that was like a visceral outpouring. We had Brendan O'Brien. He forced us to just simplify and just what came naturally just work. Listen, yes, I understand where that's coming from. Um, 
do I find it strange that he doesn't understand why we love Tan the way we do? A little bit. Well, I, I think think about it. Think of some of the songs on Ten. Black, Alive, Even Flow. These songs live. Would you argue that they resemble more jam sessions now? Like there's the 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 loose structure of what those songs were on the album. Yes, and then but they still have big massive choruses that people want to sing along to. Yeah, those don't go away. But I'm saying yeah. that the the that that perfection of structure and 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 arrangement like that kind of goes out the window when they're the live. I feel like they, they maintain the the general structure of the song. Then they just let it go after well, that. You know uh, counterpoint, I mean? uh, Rear Mirror and Daughter. Mm. So. I think that was kind of always in their in their back pocket. That's and fair. hell, there were there was a long time where they didn't play a lot of verses in the, over the last maybe 15, 20 years. There, there were there'd be shows where you just didn't see verses show up. Yeah. Um, well, figure daughter is uh, like a top eight song, I think, on live but stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a so ballad, I, I, an acoustic ballad, no less. Yeah, and and, and I, so I, I thought that that him looking back at ten and and feeling about it the way he did, and he's like, oh, I think it's a great record. I just don't. It's hard for me to understand why people love it. Like he, it's almost like he couldn't figure out why, uh, or he thought that people were looking at it as like like pop music, like it should be super hooky. It's like not everything super popular and that people love is super hooky. Is is Stairway to Heaven super poppy and hooky? No, it's seven minutes with a three and a half minute guitar. <laughs> like it's not. That's not. Bohemian Rhapsody has ups and downs and, and hooks in it, but that's a story that bobs and weaves. Like hey, people well, love music for different reasons, man. What what episode are we on right now? One sixty one. Okay, so there might be people out there, might, unlikely, but might, who would say that first episode was the smash or those first three three to five or whatever it is. <laughs> right now, you and I would be sitting here saying, "Oh, are you kidding me?" Like, like we're, we're well, so way much better now. That's how we would probably re- <laughs> respond, right? So, I think it's it's natural for Stone to think back at that record and, yeah. and not hold it in the highest of regards, considering how much both he and the band have grown together musically and professionally as artists. So he said he felt sloppy and lazy in many places on that record because they were just going over and over and over and over and over. And he wasn't thinking about what he had to play. Like he think he, I think he mentioned like, Oh, this part should be where I play a minor progression. And I played a major cause I wasn't really f- focused on the thing. Cause I was playing it so much. And it was like, well, guess what? It, it seemed to work out still. Yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I mean, there's listen, when you get little, little breadcrumbs, of what these guys think we're thinking about at yeah. certain times in this, in this timeline of Pearl jam, it, it brings about the same conversations that we have time and again, um, over the last 30 years, but it, it just adds a new fun wrinkle. Like, Oh, what did he mean by that? So I always, I always enjoy when there's interviews where the interviewer can really get a fun nugget out of one of these guys. And yeah, the information about the new album being pretty well along was great, but I, I got a kick out of some of the other stuff. I don't know about you. Yeah. Same. I would agree. What do you guys think about that? Did you guys listen to the interview? Um, we will link to it in the episode description. If you haven't, uh, it's a video pod, uh, interview as well. If you'd like to do it that way, um, Kyle Meredith interviews stone Gosser. You can just YouTube that if you'd like. Uh, so yeah, let us know comments. What are your thoughts on our thoughts? Thoughtception, if you will. While you're ruminating on that, we'll move on 
to our lyric of the week. Moving on to lyric of the week. This week we are closing out verses with the last track we mentioned it earlier, Daughter. Paul daughter um technically the second single from versus but only internationally yet it's still charted like crazy here in America anyway this is the first verse what do you got man this song is this one it hits in a different way i mm. think because as somebody who works in education i have uh witnessed firsthand the impact that learning differences have and how we approach this from a very different space than we once did. Um, I think that today we, we look at, you know, we don't even call them disabilities. We don't call I was them say. that we, that they're, I mean, learning differences is, is what they're called. And yeah. there's so much research on multiple intelligences and, and the taxonomy of critical thinking and, looking at how people process and synthesize and evaluate information in different ways <clears throat> and how something like dyslexia, for example, uh, you know, w- when I first got into education, I was actually trained in a specific um, process, a specific uh, practice, I guess you could call it in, in helping kids with dyslexia learn to read and write. And it was uh, very successful actually. Um, and it dawned on me that it, it, it's, it's really just, it, it's like coding. Like you, you, you just have to crack the code for how this person mm. sees things and interprets things. And then when you can, when you can filter the English language through that code for that person, it opens up world of access that was, that had previously been a closed door. And I feel like the education system has embraced this idea of, um, you know, let's, let's, it's funny because there are more labels now than there were when, you know, we were teenagers and we were younger, mm-hmm. but I think um, the, the, the purpose of the labels is to create empowerment and, and opportunity and, and avenues for remediation and avenues for um, growth. Uh, whereas I feel like back when we were younger, there was a, uh, you know, labels were meant to, um, I don't want to say dehumanize, but they, they were meant to, uh, to stifle or, or, or meant to, to create some sort of, um, you know, uh, derogatory or, or, uh, you know, hurtful, mm-hmm. uh, percep- perception, different, bad. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and it's, this is a song about a girl who has what appears to be dyslexia, or at least that, that I've seen connections to that and, and how her parents or in this case, mom does not, really understand that and doesn't know how to reconcile that. And we have this, you know, this dichotomy of the 
the, the painful ending imagery of the shades going down so that, you know, those in the area, neighbors across the way, don't see the, 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 the verbal or even physical abuse that transpires. Um, for a child who, you know, it doesn't, isn't, she just learns differently. You know what I mean? Doesn't mean she cannot learn. She just learns differently. And this idea that parents, man, like you and I are both fathers, like parents have a tendency to see children as, as extensions and reflections of themselves. And when those kids do not uh, manifest whatever expectations or um, achieve whatever failed ambitions that parents had, it's that there's a, an inclination at times for people to, uh, you know, project that self-loathing mm. and failure and disappointment in themselves on their children. And I don't know like what the driving force is to explain the, the abuse in daughter. It's not clear. Like wh what is it about this child's learning difference that triggers the parents? So, but whatever it is, it triggers them enough to, to create a horrible environment and culture of abuse within within this child's life. And uh, we do have this uplifting line, you know, she will rise above. And uh, and there's a soaring guitar part that goes with it. And, and I think that offers a glimmer of hope. But ultimately, um, this song to me is just as relevant now as, as it ever was, because... Uh, this conversation about learning differences and you know uh, how those things manifest themselves in the behavior of young people in terms of being dysregulated in a classroom, being disruptive, uh, acting in defiant ways, uh, not being cooperative, struggling to focus, struggling to complete tasks, the association of of these learning differences to uh, you know struggles with executive functioning and how all that impacts and the entire trajectory of a child's life. It, it, it is it is a far bigger conversation than we could possibly have time yeah. for in this segment. So all I'll say is that I appreciate this song for its intimacy and um, I appreciate the the the. Um, the heartfelt commitment to capturing tone and to do so without distortion. You know, I love the clean sound of the song. It was, it was a risky move. And I think mm. it was a conscious choice on the part of the band to not really push it as a single, uh, you know, for fear of, of how, you know, it would reflect on them states. I don't know if it was them, their manager, if it was just coincidental, I don't really know. It'd be something to ask one day, but uh, it was interesting that it was, I think it wasn't released abroad as a single, but not stateside, yeah. which I thought it was interesting. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a conversation that deserves to be had. It's a conversation that um, the more answers we get, <laughs> the more of a compelling need to reflect back on what led us to this place. And a song like daughter is rooted in that culture and in that place. So for me, this is just the beginning of what will hopefully be a, a long and uh, continual dialogue so that we can, can, you know, obviously create opportunities for, for growth, empowerment, but more importantly than that, um, prosperity, you know, for, for people, regardless of how they learn. I find it very, I mean, brave is the wrong word, but I don't know a better one. Um, 
to to even write a song about this specific kind of parent-child relationship mm. in 1993 and for it to find such an audience where it's it quickly became and is still such a beloved song in the catalog probably mostly to do with the music and the melody and or how many people it speaks to in the audience <laughs> but that's the th- and that's the that's the sublayer is like yeah. for somebody like me who doesn't directly associate with the story i am empathetic enough to be like oh this is this this is oh this is heartbreaking but like at the same time the music is so compelling and magnetic statistically um, man like like one out of every two or three people next to us at a concert oh yeah can can relate to this yeah, and yeah, so, yeah, and not necessarily the abuse, but just the having the learning difference. You know? Well, and, I, and here's what I was going with this: is that I didn't, I didn't personally get that because I didn't, I didn't have necessarily that that learning difference when I was a kid. Now, when we were we were in high school, I mean, everybody was getting prescribed Ritalin. How many kids were overprescribed Ritalin because they, oh, you've got ADD, you've got this, you've got that, you've got that. Here's the pro- here's the here's your problem. Here's this. Here's the solution. As opposed to what you were talking about, um, where it's like, it's not a problem you know, at all. <laughs> it's not really a problem per right. se. It's a problem to to the teacher who doesn't recognize that there are students who learn at different speeds and in different ways, and one size does not fit all. Correct. That's the differentiation piece was absent in 1993. Yeah, the the hat of learning is a snapback. It's not a fitted. Correct. And well said. That's a great you. analogy. Um, I didn't, I didn't know how to connect to that story on, on a personal level until I had my second kid. Now, as I've told you before, uh, offline, my second kid has been difficult in many, for, for long swaths of time. He's, he's a lot easier to deal with now, but for a long period of time, he just didn't know how to communicate a little behind on the, on the, on the speech, um, uh, learning, and just would have tantrums like crazy, throwing his head against the floor, pulling hair, throwing stuff. Like it was, it brought us to tears. Like we couldn't figure out how to solve it. Now we're not like the parents in this song where we took to like, you're wrong, you're messed up and we're going to abuse the crap out of you and turn you into this, this, this child that just completely turns inward and then ultimately thinks, Oh my God, I, I am the problem. No, thankfully <laughs> we're not like that. Uh, and we, we've learned to find the right ways to get him to where he needs to be. And luckily he is doing that. But like the, the struggle of not understanding there is all of a sudden you get like the, wow. Okay. I can see where the frustration and the stress. And by the way, you know, you know in the line, um, breakfast table in an otherwise empty room. Maybe right. I'm overthinking it, but the otherwise empty room maybe implies to me that this family doesn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, maybe they're poor. And that is another stress that weighs down on a parent. And when you have, when you're at your wit's end and you can't figure out why your child won't do something that you think is rudimentary, you flip out. And if you aren't, um, if you can't self-regulate enough or you don't understand yourself enough, 
you're going to take it out on them. And that's what right. this mother does. And it creates this cycle. And now this child is in this place. And as I pointed out in a, in a recent episode, I think this song pairs well with every mirror and how she comes out of it eventually. Mm-hmm. I recall. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, a, a, it, like I said, it, it was courageous to write a song about something that wasn't a popular topic to even approach, let alone diagnose through music, um, through song in 1993. And listen, that, that was the band in the early nineties. They were mm-hmm. writing songs that people who were not being uh, spoken to or listened to for. And when stones talks about, Hey, I don't understand really why 10 was as big as it is, bro, because y'all are music that found a bunch of people that weren't being listened to. So in a, in a sense, a lot of the audience in some kind of way felt like this girl who was, was being misunderstood. And there's your, there's your, you know, quote unquote grunge scene in a bottle that they tapped into. Yeah. And, um, man, this song is something else. Um, and to be played, you know, 560, this something like that times is wild. Um, yeah, but I'm still fascinated that this song is, is so popular and I'm learning so much about how people can be drawn to it when I didn't get it for a long time. I just, Oh, this is great music. You know, let me ask you a question. I, yeah. we, we have a, a mutual friend, which I'll tell you about when we're done, who loathes this song. <laughs> uh, and I asked him why. And he just said, it's so repetitive. It's just the same yeah. okay. lyrics I, over I, and over I, and I over see again. It. I was going to, I was going to ask you, I was like, did you, do you feel that way? Cause it, I feel like there's a, a, a really compelling story being told with that, intro um, and, and the verse again uh, we get this bridge but then it doesn't like it do you, do you think that this song needed another verse i think this story is told i think when you look at what ed is trying to say i think if there were more to it it's it's the song previous to this on the on the record and river mirror animal and river mirror speak to what this little girl might become. Mm-hmm. And so what they did here in this song is they presented act one and left the, left the listener to fill in what might happen next. All, all Ed says is she will rise above when, how, you know, you can, you can guess, or you can listen to the other songs and make that your little trilogy as I did. Um, is it repetitive? I can see how someone would say it's repetitive. And, and, and simplistic, sure. But some of the best songs are. Um, you've got to hide your love away. Pretty damn simple. Same three or four chords over and over again. Um, glory Lyrically, days. I think it was less musically. Oh, I'm His sorry. His point okay. was it's the same lyrics, essentially. No, it's not. After the, 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 well, I mean, if you, if you, if you think about it, right. I mean, we've got the, the, the verse that opens the song. Then yeah. we get our chorus then we get our bridge, right. And then it's a chorus and an outro. But I mean, the, the chorus is, I would say the chorus is is what? Don't uh, Call Me Daughter. Not fit to. 60% of the song, maybe? I mean, I don't know. You know, I, but it's separated by, by, by a lyrical bridge and a guitar solo. I mean, that's, that's like every pop rock song. And the song is what? Almost four minutes long? Three and a half minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long do you want the song to be? 
I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I don't have a problem with the length. I don't have a problem with the the amount of words. Um, so in that way, I know I don't think it's repetitive. So it's not seven o'clock to you, but it's that's <laughs> that's not seven o'clock's problem. Exactly. <laughs> well, you said the amount of words. That's the, the amount of I words. Had. Yes. <laughs> oh my god, the, the amount of syllables. <laughs> Word salad. All right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that's that's daughter. <laughs> that's that's the uh, abridged version of our daughter chat. What do, what do you guys think about this song? H- has it affected you? Or your loved ones? Do you, have you empathized or sympathized in a way that that makes this song hold extra value to you? I would love to know. But for now, we're going to check out the best live version in our live cut of the week. Ready to stand up! All right, Paul, live cut of Daughter, Where and When. Well, uh, there are a few, what I would say, definitive homework shows of the Versus Tour. And uh, I think the performance of Daughter from the Orpheum in uh, Boston, April 12th, 1994, takes the cake.
So this one's a good one. Um, one of the last performances with Dave Abrazis. And, you know, Dave's drumming on this song. He said that, you know, they, they played this song for like six months before they ever recorded it. And he was playing drums a certain way. And then when they went to record it, Brendan Brown was like, simplify, bro, simplify. Mm-hmm. And so he did. And he, and he loved that. And then after that live, he kind of combined the two approaches. Um, it, it definitely is more full and involved than what Jack or Matt would do. Um, but, you know, it, it fits, it fits the time and I like it. And I think that when we talk about, the daughter tag there have been so many and i think ed has always done a usually a really good job of picking verses or or lyrics that really complement what the song is about um and i think this one was fantastic you know choosing some lines from suck you dry by mud honey was really really cool and i thought the performance was fantastic and, and listen 94 Orpheum. The vibe in that room is epic, legendary. So, sure was. I understand. All right, there we go, guys. Uh, thank you very much. This was a, a fun open uh, open air uh, conversation. Yeah. Um, and again, we easily think... went on for half an hour longer than I thought we would. <laughs> I, I thought maybe at the beginning we we're, we're going to have enough meat on this bone, but we uh, we got through it. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you again for anyone who has joined Patreon or bought a shirt. And if you have fed the algorithm, you're epic. Um, what else, Paul? That's it. Just keep feeding that bad boy. Feed <laughs> the algorithm by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your pa- uh, podcast platform of choice. I almost got those mixed up. There you go. I'll keep. I'll finish my uh, Anderson Valley here. My uh, my. Yeah, I'm all done. Oh, see that? Yeah. Empty. All right. Well, thank you again, guys, and uh, we'll 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 talk to you soon. And until we do, you've been listening to the state of love and trust. Yeah.